This is Gene Delcourt and uh, Nate Weggehout with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Students at Sun Prairie's East High School held a rally on Friday to protest gun violence across the country. The rally was attended by more than 100 students and staff, and for an hour, people shared their stories about gun violence, according to NBC15 News. The organizer for the rally called on state legislators to ban assault weapons, implement red flag laws, and have stricter background checks, emphasizing how commonplace it was to fear gun violence in schools across America. Wisconsin State Archaeologist James Skibo died on Friday during a routine drive on Lake Mendota, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Skibo, who was hired as the state archaeologist in 2021, was instrumental in the recovery of a pair of Native American canoes from Lake Mendota, a major archaeological find. Skibo had previously worked as the chair of the anthropology department at Illinois State University, and colleagues remembered him as a passionate and enthusiastic ally of public archaeology. The Alzheimer's and Dementia Alliance of Wisconsin announced last week that they are planning to cease operations in June. The Madison-based nonprofit, which provides support groups and other services for people with dementia and their caretakers across 10 counties in south-central Wisconsin, has struggled with funding and staffing since the COVID pandemic, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Dementia is on the rise in Wisconsin and across the country, but Medicaid and many health care plans do not provide funds for dementia support services. The Alzheimer's and Dementia Alliance will decide next month which organizations to give its assets to, in hopes that some of its programs will continue in some form. Outgoing Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent Carlton Jenkins is a finalist for the position of school superintendent in Memphis, Tennessee, reports the Capital Times. Jenkins announced earlier this year that he was planning to retire in July, saying he wanted to spend more time with his grandson. Jenkins did not respond to requests for comments from the Cap Times. Meanwhile, the Madison Metropolitan School Board is looking to hire a search firm to find a new superintendent. The board plans to take up the matter at their meeting later tonight. And now on to today's top stories. For over 50 years, John Nolan Drive has served as the gateway to Madison, leading folks from the outskirts past Lake Monona and into the heart of downtown. Now, city officials are looking to update the iconic roadway and announced last week that the project will now be almost entirely funded by the federal government. WORT producer Nate Wagehout has more. The Federal Highway Administration announced last Friday that they are giving the city of Madison over $15 million to replace bridges on John Nolan Drive. This comes as the city's Lake Monona Waterfront Design Challenge begins to wrap up and city officials decide on which of three plans to move forward with. The new $15 million grant means that the John Nolan Drive reconstruction project will now almost entirely be funded by the federal government. Back in the summer of 2021, the federal government committed $9 million to the John Nolan Drive project, a grant that was later increased to $11 million. That means that, combined with last week's grant, the federal government has now committed around $26 million to the project, which is expected to cost around $30 million. Chris Petikowski is one of the project leads on the John Nolan Reconstruction Project. He says the federal funding for the project is critical. You know, this is a big project and, uh, you know, it could normally, you know, on its own kind of 
encompass our entire budget for the whole year, uh, just for the whole city. So uh, to have this help uh, with the grants to put towards this project so that we can, you know, continue our programs on the streets uh, for, you know, uh, like we like we normally have. It's really big. Last fall, Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway included $21 million in the city's 2023 capital budget for the John Nolan Drive project. Petikowski says that with this new grant, the city will now only have to use a fraction of that money. The grant is part of a $300 million investment from the bipartisan infrastructure bill awarded to eight other bridge projects across the country. At a press conference on Friday morning, senior advisor to President Biden and White House infrastructure coordinator Mitch Landry said that this nationwide bridge building project is long overdue and will help prepare the country for the 21st century. If you invest in America, if you invest in its people, if you invest in its infrastructure, uh, nobody will ever beat America. We will prepare ourselves for the 21st century and build a better America that creates an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, which is specifically to say not the top down because it never gets down to the bottom. This is about creating jobs. John Nolan Drive is one of the most heavily used roads in Madison, carrying around 48,000 vehicles and 4,000 bikes every day, says Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway. And with all of that use comes a lot of wear and tear. The causeways, the bridges date back to 1965. And every year they are subjected to the salt and ice of Wisconsin winters and the busy lake and wave action in the summer months. So these bridges are very much in need of replacement. The $15 million grant will help to replace six bridges on John Nolan Drive and looks to address the poor structural integrity of the bridges as well as safety concerns on the thoroughfare. Last October, a bicyclist was killed after he was hit by a driver who had run a red light while going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Petikowski says that they are looking to implement a number of new safety measures. What we're looking to do is try to create more pedestrian and bike space and then separate it to the extent possible away from the the vehicle space. So that's that's kind of one thing we're we're looking at doing. Then the, the other thing is is looking at how to how do pedestrians and bikes cross John Nolan Drive to get to the lakefront. So one primary spot they do that is at the North Shore Drive intersection. So we're looking at different intersection alternatives that would uh, you know kind of enhance that head bike crossing safety. The reconstruction of John Nolan Drive goes hand in hand with the Lake Monona waterfront redesign. Earlier this month, the city's parks division released the results of a survey asking the public which of three designs they preferred. With nearly 2,500 responses, folks largely preferred the plan by international design company Sasaki, which focuses on the environmental impact and restoration of the Lake Monona waterfront. Petikowski says that though the projects are separate, they are in close coordination with each other. If there are aspects of the two plans that overlap, such as the bike and pedestrian path, he says that they could potentially implement those changes before construction on the Lake Monona waterfront begins. An ad hoc committee is expected to decide a final design team for the Lake Monona waterfront by the end of May and spend the summer ironing out the details before submitting a master plan to the Common Council in August. The John Nolan Drive reconstruction is currently in its design phase and construction is expected to begin in 2025. The project is expected to be completed by 2027.
You can find more information on the project and fill out a survey to give your thoughts on the project on the City of Madison Engineering webpage under the Projects tab. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. Back in 2020, a local nonprofit purchased Forward Gardens in Verona to help grow vegetables for local food pantries. Now, thanks to a grant from Dane County, they're celebrating the beginning of Earth Week by bringing some needed upgrades to the farm. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. Nestled in the sprawling fields in the outer limits of Verona is Forward Garden, a 15-acre piece of land recently bought by Madison Area Food Pantry Gardens a local nonprofit that grows vegetables for local food pantries. Over the past two decades, Madison Area Food Pantry Gardens has produced more than 2.2 million pounds of produce for dozens of food pantries across Dane County. The organization bought Forward Garden, located next to Pope Farm Conservancy in 2020. It's now the organization's largest piece of land. Nine other gardens, spread out across Dane County, are also part of the network. Here in Forward Garden, on a sunny April morning, spring has arrived. Planting has begun in earnest, and the garden is bustling with volunteers. And plans are in motion to bring more sustainable farming initiatives to Forward Garden. Farm manager Matt Leckmeyer says the purchase has opened a new frontier for the produce that they can grow. We've been focusing on mixed annual vegetables because we've only had an annual lease that we've had to renew each year and we haven't known if we're going to be there the next year. The last thing you want to do is put thousands of dollars into an orchard, for example, and not see a return on that investment. But now we're able to. Leckmeyer says now that they own the land, they're planning to bring an expanded composting program to the property. When I think about sustainability, I think about the the resources you need to to create your product, right? So that's water and that's soil. We're harvesting about 30,000 pounds of produce and taking it off-site each season, and so we have to replenish the nutrients. Those are... Those are removing from the site. Um, We've been fertilizing with synthetic fertilizer up until recently, and now we're putting together a project where we can compost our weed scraps. Compost is also really useful in increasing organic matter, which is um, lacking here on the property. Um, So we want to increase the organic matter, and what that does is makes the ground more spongy, and it can absorb more moisture and hold the moisture longer for the plants to access. They're also changing up their irrigation practices to be more efficient. There's lots of ways of of conveying that water to your plants. Um, Some are more efficient than others, and so drip irrigation is what we're focused on doing and so that we can deliver the water to the roots of the plants we want to grow versus watering broadly and and supporting weeds as well. Dr. Brian Arndt is a board member with the organization and a family physician. Dr. Arndt explained that reliable access to produce for lower-income individuals and families is instrumental to a healthy diet. So in my... um care of folks with chronic conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity. I really coach a lot on adequate produce consumption. And unfortunately, at this point, only about 1 in 11 or 1 in 12 people with low income consume the recommended uh, 4 to 5 servings of fruits and vegetables per day. And so in my role as a family physician, as well as an organization like this, I've been thinking about how can we improve produce access to first choice, fresh, culturally relevant produce for the folks that need it most. Jane Mount, in addition to being a volunteer, is also a board member. She touts the organization's commitment to accessibility and catering specifically to communities in need. We 
actually um, did a survey with all of our food pantries because Madison is such a culturally diverse community and we wanted to make sure that we were providing food for people that they really wanted, that they could use and food that they might not be able to get at uh, the farmer's market or, or a, a food pantry. Mount wanted WORT listeners to know that all volunteers of any ability or level of commitment can have an impact. We welcome families to come out. Um, we welcome anybody of any age and abilities. There's always something to do on the farm. You know, some people would um, need to sit and do some things, um, but we also have people who want to plant potatoes, and that's really hard work. Um, so a variety of things. I also love that you meet so many new people when you're out here. And being out, you know, working the earth is amazing, and all for the purpose of feeding your neighbor. The organization accepts volunteers at all locations, such as Anderson Farm Center in Oregon and Lacey Garden in Fitchburg. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Dairy production at UW-Madison has been on hold for years as the Babcock Hall Dairy Plant and the UW's Center for Dairy Research received some much-needed upgrades to their facilities. Last week, that plant held a grand opening for their new $72 million expansion. To learn more about the expansion and what sort of dairy research happens at the UW, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with John Lucy, director of the Center for Dairy Research, earlier today. Wisconsin is known as the dairy state, and for good reason. According to the State Department of Agriculture, Wisconsin produced the most specialty cheese in the nation in 2021, churning out 877 million pounds of cheese. That doesn't stop with the university system, and last week, UW-Madison's Center for Dairy Research and the Babcock Hall Dairy Plant reopened after several years of construction. To learn more about what's cutting edge in the dairy industry and about those new upgrades, I'm joined now by John Lucy, professor of food science and director of the Center for Dairy Research. John, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Happy happy to be here. So just to start things off here, John, tell me a little bit about the Center for Dairy Research. What is it that you do? We do a lot of things. Um, primarily, we support the, the dairy industry through training, uh, especially of our cheesemakers and other people who operate in our plants. We also do product development for them, so we help them develop their new specialty cheeses, our new other dairy products like yogurts and stuff like that. And we do a lot of applied research. So we, I, I support, and my center works on maybe 10 to 15 graduate student projects a year that are looking at new innovations in dairy or dairy processing or dairy products. So that what that means in in in, a, in an average year, we work with somewhere like 120 to 150 different dairy companies for one of those tasks, whether it's for training or whether it's for technical assistance or whether it's with research work that we're doing. And what is the current cutting edge within the dairy industry? What sort of new dairy technologies are you researching over there? We have lots of interesting projects that are going on right now. Um, recently, we've been pushing very much for extending the shelf life of cheese so that it could uh, allow our cheeses that are made here in Wisconsin to be exported to the far reaches of, of uh, the world. So, for example, if we make uh, low-moisture part-skim mozzarella, which is the primary one you see on pizza, it typically has a shelf life of maybe four to six weeks. But we've been working over the last couple of years on technologies and processes, and we've extended that shelf life out for 12 months. Now, that gives a chance for our, our manufacturers here in the Midwest and Wisconsin and local areas 
to be able to make the cheese, and it takes months to ship this product to distant lands. So you want to have enough shelf life that you can get it to where it needs to go, so it will still be, you know, perform well, taste well, etc. So we've we've actually done a series of research projects that now we're actually working with industry and companies to get them out there to their uh, allow them to extend the shelf life of their of their products. Another couple of interesting things we're looking at is, you know, many of us in the Midwest are used to tasting squeaky cheese curd, fresh cheese curds that come directly from the plant, or a couple of uh, days after cheese manufacturing. I just had, had a student come from California and said, never tasted fresh cheese curds before and something we are used to. So we are actually studying what it is about the cheese chemistry that gives this squeakiness and what happens over the first week or so that loses this squeaky nature of it. And if we can find out the secrets to that, then we might be able to um, you know, extend that property and allow us to ship to more of us and and in that we're partnering with audiology professors who study sound and acoustics and we're actually having people um, wired up basically with microphones in their ears listening to them munch on tasty squeaky cheese and actually doing many tests on the properties of cheese to understand why it has this squeaky kind of unusual fun characteristic And now, like I said before, last week you held your grand opening for the Center for Dairy Research and the Babcock Hall Dairy Plant after a couple years of construction and upgrades. What sort of upgrades did the center receive and how will that help your research going forward? One of the key things uh, that wasn't related to research is we put in a dedicated training facility because we, in an average year, over a thousand people come in to us from industry to do their training. Here in Wisconsin, you have to be licensed to make cheese. So for their cheese-making license courses and short courses, they come in here to Wisconsin to our CDR to get trained. So we do a lot of product training, and we put in a state-of-the-art auditorium for it. One of the the very unusual um, capabilities we put in here to our center is actually ripening caves to allow us to manufacture and age specialty cheeses. So the, it's not that difficult to do the manufacturing step. You know, it's not simple, but it's not too difficult to do the manufacturing of the uh, cheese. But it, the magic for specialty cheese happens when you put it into a ripening room. That ripening room, in the old days, there was caves. You know, that, uh, people would put them in a cave for months or, or six months or weeks, depending on the cheese. We actually have developed our own tin different caves here, which are very basically rooms that are environmentally controlled for temperature, humidity, and the airflow pattern around it to control the environment for our blue mold, our, our, our white mold, our smear, our alpine style, whichever type of specialty cheese you might think of that are aged in one of these caves or rooms, we can set up one of our rooms to re- recreate those exact conditions to help perfect the process to make one of those specialty cheeses. Specialty cheese is super important in Wisconsin. We make about half of the specialty cheese total made in the U.S., and this will allow us to really accelerate our development or innovation of specialty cheese here in Wisconsin and really drive that forward. We also have yogurt fermentation processes, but in here, yogurt fermenters and separators to make things like cream cheese and Greek yogurts and so on. So we're, we're, we're very focused on the cheese side of things and specialty cheese, but we're also looking at dryers um, for making high, high um, 
nutritional powders for, for things like infant formula and nutritional drinks and, and things like that. We have put in dryers as well to make the final milk powders, culture products, putting in an aseptic beverage line, which is a little bit unusual. We're all used to the gallon milk jug, which has to be stored all the time and only lasts a few weeks. It has to be stored inside in our fridge. With this aseptic beverage line, we would, we would heat treat and package milk in such a way that you don't need to put it in the refrigerator and it can sit outside for 12 months. That would really help us expand the reach of, of milk into other places in the store or convenience store, um, uh, stores or in vending machines. Could maybe even be exported some of these products. And it would also allow us just to create all kinds of new innovations in this beverage space without worrying about a very short shelf life. And also, you know, another topic that's very important for people nowadays is a lot of food wastage, too. If, if you don't use your gallon jug in time or if your kids run around for the weekend, you know, we might end up throwing away that milk if it gets spoiled. This will last for 12 months. So, again, could help us with that kind of issue as well. I've been talking with Dr. John Lucy, professor of food science at UW-Madison and director of the Center for Dairy Research. We've been talking about the center's newly opened facility, which had its grand opening last week. Uh, you can find more information on the center over at cdr.wisc.edu. John, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Thanks for joining me. Earlier this month, a federal judge in Texas overturned the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's 20-year-old um, approval, 20-year-old approval of the drug Mifepristone, excuse me if I'm not pr- pronouncing that quite correctly, for the use as an abortion agent. That same day, another federal judge came to the opposite conclusion and ruled that the sale of the drug could continue in 18 states. While the U.S. Supreme Court has signed an an order temporarily restoring the drug while the case is appealed, the ruling could have major implications for states like Wisconsin with an abortion ban on the books. On today's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Jenny Higgins, UW professor of obstetrics and gynecology and director of the Collaborative for Reproductive Equality about the rulings. This is just a portion of the full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. So what is the current legal status of mifepristone use in Wisconsin specifically? Oh, my gosh. It's really confusing, and I, I think um, important to clarify what we can. So because of Wisconsin's 1849 ban and because of pending lawsuits around that ban, as you know, right now, there are no abortion services available in Wisconsin unless to save the life of the pregnant person. So this, these rulings have no immediate bearing on medication abortion in Wisconsin because medication abortion isn't available. But these rulings do have implications for two really important parts of reproductive health care more broadly. One is miscarriage management, And one is induction of labor in certain circumstances. So the same medication that's used in medication abortion is used in miscarriage management um, and certain types of labor induction. And so these uh, cases could impact physicians' ability to use those, um, to use mifepristone in those cases. 
But for now, they still can use methoprestone for those cases. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Now, did the judge in Texas take any account of these other uses of mifepristone before claiming that the FDA had erred in its uh, approval of the drug? It's, a, it's an excellent question. And I think because this drug is known much more widely for medication abortion care, and because abortion, as you know, is so much more politicized as a healthcare procedure than miscarriage management, really all we've been hearing about is its implications for abortion care. And I think the judge was primarily going after that. But I think we've missed as a, as a both a medical and a public health community, the importance of how this affects also uh, miscarriage management. So are there other options besides mifepristone uh, that are safe and effective for either miscarriage management or for abortion use? Yes. So mifepristone is one of two medications that's used in most medication abortion care. It's mifepristone and misoprostol is the other medication. There are protocols for misopristol-only medication abortion. So a medication abortion protocol that involves only one of the two pills. And the the World Health Organization has approved that miso-only protocol for a number of years. Um, U.S. scientists and medical experts have recently approved it for the U.S. So it's really important for people to know that even if mifepristone is no longer available as these cases unfold, people still can obtain medication abortion care where it's legal with misoprostol. However, it is not as effective or as um, side effect free a regimen as the dual pill. So even though it's great to have that option and while it's very safe, Uh, People who use MISO only for medication abortion care or miscarriage care experience more pain and more bleeding, and that is um, an unethical consequence of this decision on the people who need these, these pills. Now, what does all this mean for the ability of women in states with abortion prohibitions like Wisconsin uh, to self-manage their abortions or to find abortion services elsewhere? Yeah, so as, as I said, the in the immediate term, the removal of, of the potential removal of mifepristone or the, the FDA say disapproval of mifepristone would not immediately change abortion care within the formal healthcare system in Wisconsin. However, these cases could definitely affect people's use of self-managed medication abortion. And by that, we mean people order mifepristone and mesoprostol by mail to um, use the exact same regimen that people would use in a formal healthcare system, um, but have a take the medication and have a, an abortion in their homes. There is there was one ruling in recent weeks that had an important implication that restricted the use of mail for methoprestone distribution. So it essentially, if that, if that particular case were to come through, people would it would be against the law everywhere to ship and receive mifepristone by mail. And that in Wisconsin would potentially increase the criminalization of people who use self-managed medication abortion. Jenny Higgins, University of Wisconsin professor of obstetrics and gynecology and director of the Collaborative for Reproductive Equality. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate your attention to this issue. 
This Wednesday marks the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprisings of 1943, the largest Jewish uprising against the Nazis in World War II. Though defeated, they inspire growing resistance movements then and now. Future contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Wednesday, April 19th, is the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943. The uprising began after German troops entered the ghetto to deport the surviving inhabitants. Jewish insurgents fought back. It was the largest Jewish uprising during World War II and the first significant urban revolt against the German occupation. They held out for nearly a month, but on May 16th, the Germans crushed the uprising and deported surviving ghetto residents to concentration camps and killing centers. About 700 young Jewish fighters, armed with pistols, grenades, and explosives, fought back against the Nazis. The rest refused to assemble at collection points and hid to avoid capture. At least 7,000 Jews died in the fighting or in hiding. Another 7,000 were captured by the Germans at the end of the fighting. They were deported to Treblinka. After the uprising, the Germans deported approximately 42,000 Jews to forced labor camps and to the Loblin Majdanek concentration camp. Most of them were murdered in November of 1943 in two days of shootings called Operation Harvest Festival. They were defeated, but they showed that ordinary determined people could fight the Nazis. They inspired the later Warsaw Uprising and other resistance movements. The action also refutes the myth that Jews and other civilians did not fight the Nazis. One such resistor, Tosha Altman, a member of the Socialist Zionist Youth Movement, Hashomer Hazer, smuggled herself into Poland's ghettos on false papers, organizing groups, spreading information, and moving weapons before dying of injuries at 24 after the uprising. Her story is incredible and typical of papers at the Werner Holocaust Library in London. The Warsaw Ghetto was the largest Jewish ghetto in German-occupied Europe, founded in October 1940. It housed approximately 400,000. From July until September 12, 1942, German SS and police deported 265,000 people from Warsaw to Treblinka. They killed about 35,000 Jews during the operation. By early 1943, the surviving Jews numbered from 70,000 to 80,000. By the late summer of 1942, everyone knew resettlement operations meant certain death. So several underground organizations merged on July 28, 1942. They created an armed Jewish combat organization known by its Polish acronym ZOB. A second group was formed by the right-wing revisionist Zionist movement, especially its youth group, Batar. The second force became the Jewish Military Union, known as the ZZW. Despite tension, the two groups worked together. During the uprising, there were 500 fighters in the ZOB and 250 in the ZZW. It took months, but in October, the ZOB managed to establish contact with the Polish armed resistance, obtaining a small number of weapons, mostly pistols explosives. In January of 1943, German forces returned to deport the remaining Jews, but a small group of Jewish fighters infiltrated the pickup point and fought the Germans. Most of the Jewish fighters died in the battle, but while the Germans were disoriented, the rest of the Jews dispersed. Fighters encouraged people 
to defy deportation and hide. So the Nazis were only able to round up 5,000 to 6,500 people and suspended deportations. Encouraged, people constructed a series of bunkers and shelters preparing for the final deportation. On April 19, 1943, the day before Passover, the Jews began their final resistance. The ZOB had received advance warning and were able to get residents to their hiding places. The Germans had 2,000 experienced soldiers and police reinforced with artillery and tanks. The 24-year-old ZOB commander Mordecai Elwitz led the Jewish insurgents. They had only pistols, grenades, many homemade, and a few automatic weapons and rifles, but they killed 12 Germans and forced them to retreat that first day behind the ghetto wall. About 700 young Jewish fighters opposed the Germans, sometimes in hand-to-hand combat. The ZOB was poorly trained, but waged a guerrilla action of striking and retreating to the safety of ghetto buildings, bunkers, and underground tunnels. Civilians, meanwhile, refused to assemble at collection points and remained in hiding. In the end, the Germans raised the ghetto to the ground. On May 8, 1943, German forces seized the ZOB headquarters. Neowitz and many of his staff commanders are thought to have committed suicide rather than surrender to the Nazis. Although they were defeated, they inspired uprisings in other ghettos, such as Bialystok and Minsk. Today, remembrances of the Holocaust are linked to the dates of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Last night's snowfall after last week's warm temperatures served as a good reminder that here in Wisconsin, the weather can turn at any moment. This week is National Severe Weather Awareness Week, and weather producer Caitlin Davis breaks down what to do in case of severe weather. Sunny, beautiful, 80-degree weather in Madison with a side of some snow. Welcome to the Midwest, where we have no idea what is going on with our weather between the months of March, April, and May. I spoke with a few people about how they feel about the shift from the 80-degree temperatures to the snow, and here's how they felt about it. Marianne Cote. I feel like the world has let me down because I get so excited for the sun and so excited to wear a cute outfit, and I simply can't because I go outside and it's freezing and then it's snowing, and I'm like, awesome, that's really great. My name is Jake. I don't like the sudden weather changes just due to the fact of, as somebody that has a fairly decent commute. Nervous drivers, when the weather starts to change, can be dangerous to be around and unpredictable. So, yeah. I'm Kate. I think it is actually just really rude that Mother Nature teased us like that. I was completely ready for summer. My name's Alicia, and I don't like the sudden weather changes because I don't know whether to wake up and wear a t-shirt or a winter coat. Living in the Midwest my whole life, I personally am not surprised by this weather, but I am disappointed. Nobody wants to go from t-shirt and shorts weather to let me find my hat and gloves weather. False hope is disappointing, and so is the snow on the ground. Last year's temperature a year ago today was 46 degrees. The record high was 86 degrees, and today we are reaching a high of 39 degrees. The historical average for the weather here in Madison on April 17th is 57.6 degrees, so we are sitting way below that today. A cold front made its way through Madison, dragging in these freezing temperatures, snow, high winds, and a winter weather advisory. Speaking about the crazy severe weather we've been seeing in Madison, this week is National Severe Weather Awareness Week. Now is the time to designate a safety plan if you do not have one already for the severe weather. Here are some tips on what to do in different locations in a chance of severe weather. If you have a storm cellar, that is the safest place to be. 
Make sure you get in the storm cellar when you're first told to take cover. Bring a radio in case your phone dies to get updates of when the storm passes. Have plenty of food and water in case of entrapment. And if you have animals, be sure to bring food and water for them too. And maybe even a cage with a blanket if your animals get super nervous. If you live in an apartment building, a dorm, or a house without a basement, get to the lowest level and get into a small room. Under a stairwell, a bathroom, or an interior hallway with no windows is a good place to be. Grab any blankets or heavy materials, such as a mattress if time allows, and take cover. Crouch down, cover yourself, and cover your head with your hands. Stay as low to the ground as possible. If you live in a house with a basement, get into the basement, avoid windows, and again, go to the center part of your basement under a stairwell, bathroom, or in an interior wall. Avoid any heavy objects in your basement, such as a fridge. Take heavy materials like blankets or mattresses and cover yourself and stay low to the ground. If you happen to be in an office space, a hospital, or a tall building, get to the lowest floor possible and go directly to an enclosed windowless area in the building. Interior walls in places like this are usually a good place to take shelter, but again, get to the lowest level possible. Avoid elevators because if power goes out, you can become stuck in them. If you're in a car or a truck, and if the tornado is visible, far away, and the traffic is light, you may be able to drive out of its path by moving at the right angles to the tornado. Seek shelter in a sturdy building or underground if possible. If you are caught by extreme winds or flying debris, park the car as quickly and safely as possible. Stay in the car with the seatbelt on. Put your head below the windows. Cover your head with your hands in a blanket coat or any other cushion that you have available in your car. If you can safely get lower than the level of the roadway, such as in a ditch, leave your car and lay in the area, covering your head with your hands. Do not seek shelter under bridges. It can create deadly traffic hazards and they have little protection from flying debris. If you're outside, seek shelter in a sturdy building. If none are available, lie flat and face down on low ground, protecting the back of your head with your hands. Get as far away from trees and cars as you can. If you're in a shopping mall or a large store, don't panic. In areas as such, quickly go to an interior bathroom, storage room, or other small enclosed areas that are away from windows. It will get packed with people, but make sure to let everyone in. It will be uncomfortable, but it can keep everyone safe. If you're at school, follow the drill. Go to an interior hallway or windowless room in an orderly way as you are told. Crouch low, head down, and protect the back of your head with your arms. Stay away from windows in large open rooms like gyms and auditoriums. Wisconsin averages 23 tornadoes per year, but that's not to say that the number won't get higher. In 2021 alone, the National Weather Service confirmed 28 tornadoes in Wisconsin. This Thursday, April 20th, there will be tornado drills at 1.45 p.m. and 6.45 p.m. This is a good time to participate and treat these alarms as if they're a real tornado. You can never prepare enough. Be safe, be prepared, and do your part to inform others. Severe weather can strike anywhere, anytime. Now, back to Madison's crazy weather. Madison has had an accumulation of about 4 inches of snow, plus or minus, but should hopefully not stay long. Current temperatures in Madison are sitting at 38 degrees, but are feeling to be about 29 degrees due to the high wind speeds blowing at 17 miles per hour from the north, 
which is bringing in all that cool air from Canada. Overnight, we'll be dropping into the 20s with continued high winds blowing between 10 to 20 miles per hour. Tomorrow is looking to be a bit warmer with a high in the mid-50s. A weak ridge is moving in with higher winds in the morning that later will calm down in the late afternoon. Tuesday is looking to be nice and sunny with a UV index of 6. Humidity is staying in the 50th percentile during the day, but will rise into the evening. Lows are looking to drop into the mid-30s with a chance of some rain. Wednesday, warm air air advection precipitation will be expected to take place in the area. We could be hearing some thunder and CAPE, also known as Convective Available Potential Energy, which is a measure of the amount of energy available for convection, which is directly related to the maximum potential vertical wind speed within an updraft and higher values indicating a greater potential for some severe weather. I know that was a lot of information, so for sure we could be seeing some potential severe weather. Low-level jets could be present, bringing and strong winds. Storms are looking to be in the area all day, but a greater chance into the evening. The high will reach the high 50s and later will drop down into the high 40s. Thursday is looking to see continued showers and storms in the earlier hours of the day, and winds will be blowing between 10 to 20 miles per hour with high humidity in the 70th percentile. Into the evening, temperatures will drop down into the high 30s with continued high wind speeds. Friday is looking to be very cloudy with a high in the mid to upper 50s. High wind speeds are looking to continue between 10 to 20 miles per hour, and into the evening, temperatures will be dropping into the low to mid-30s with lighter winds. For WORT News, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new features. First is Ithaca, an important documentary on the prosecution of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. Then on the small screen, the new series Transatlantic, based on the true story of a group who rescued 2,000 writers and artists from the Nazis in 1940 Marseille. If Julian is extradited to the United States to face these charges, he will be the first, but not the last. That was clicked from the trailer for a new documentary about the persecution of Julian Assange, Ithaca, directed by Ben Lawrence. The film came out last year during Assange's fight against extradition and likely life imprisonment in a high-security U.S. prison. It was shown last Monday at the Barrymore Theater, sponsored by the Progressive Magazine. There's a subtitle, A Father, A Family, A Fight for Justice. That just about sums it up. The movie is a deeply moving story of the efforts of Assange's family, especially his father, John Shipton, to see it that his son is set free. Assange is also defended by his brother, Gabriel, the film's producer, and his fiancée, now spouse, Stella Morris. A brief review of what brought Assange to this point. Julian Assange is the co-founder of a whistleblowing website, WikiLeaks. In 2010, the group revealed that after deleting names of those who might be harmed, evidence of U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Major international publications eagerly collaborated to print the story, including The New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, El Pace, and Der Spiegel. Last November, after varying degrees of silence, these same publications have issued a joint statement which says, in part, holding governments accountable is part of the core mission of a free press in a democracy. It also denounces the potential criminalization of obtaining and disclosing sensitive information, a core part of the daily work of journalists. They then call on the U.S. government to end its prosecution of Julian Assange for publishing secrets. Publishing is not a crime. When the leaks 
were first printed, Assange became a liberal hero, but then he was charged on flimsy evidence of sexual assault in Sweden. Fearing this was a ruse to get him out of Britain and deported to the U.S., he sought and received sanctuary in London's Ecuadorian embassy, where he ended up confined to tiny rooms from 2012 to 2019, when the Ecuadorian government changed hands and allowed the British government to take Assange, who now is in London's brutal Belmarsh prison in solitary confinement. During this period, Assange's health, mental, and physical has declined. This is one of the points brought out effectively in the documentary. Even if you have little sympathy for Assange, personally, it seems that seven years of house arrest and four years in a high security prison should be enough to let him off with time served. If you are concerned about the state of journalism, you should oppose the continued effort to extradite him to the U.S. and join with those like Daniel Ellsberg of Pentagon Papers fame to support his release. Norm Stockwell, progressive publisher, announced after the movie that a Dear Colleague letter was sent out to Attorney General Merrick Garland calling on the Justice Department to drop the charges against publisher Julian Assange. The letter, led by Michigan Representative Rashida Talib. She is joined by New York reps Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman, Massachusetts rep Iona Presley, Texas Rep. Gregor Cesar, Minneapolis Rep. Ilhan Omar, and Missouri Rep. Cory Bush. Norm urged the audience to contact their congressional representatives in Assange's behalf. Assange's father and brother, as well as Cap Times editor John Nichols, spoke briefly after the film, a very worthwhile event. The documentary is well worth going out of your way to see. Now for a new multi-part series on a little-known story from World War II. I have lost everyone. You have to keep moving forward. I'm doing something truly important here. Maybe for the first time in my life. This is a new world. The old rules don't apply. That was a clip from the trailer for Transatlantic, a new seven-part series that just started playing on Netflix. The episodes average about 50 minutes each. Transatlantic was co-created by Anna Winger and Daniel Hedler. The Berlin-based winger has long been interested in the story of young American Varian Fry, who, early in World War II, had an extraordinary rescue mission for artists and writers, most of them Jewish, in great danger from the Nazi and Vichy government. Fry chose the southern French port of Marseille as his base. There he assembled a team and managed to smuggle 2,000 people to safety. Among the artists and writers were artist Max Ernst, political philosopher Hannah Arendt, and the German novelist Heinrich Mann. The movie is based on the novel by Julie Oranger, The Flight Portfolio. The series was well acted and filmed on location. Although it becomes too Hollywood and soap opera-like, especially in the, its later episodes, it's well worth viewing for illuminating this little-known story. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Faye Parks. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Harry Richardson, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. And humanity's greatest hope, Victor, Victor Calzoni, engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Um, stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>